Welcome to Media Roots Radio. This is Robbie Martin. Welcome to Media Roots Radio. This is your host, Abby Martin. I'm just going to basically interview you about your experience at Gitmo. Yeah, so I just got back from Guantanamo Bay. Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. The best kept secret in Cuba. That's what all the shirts say on the gift shop. Uh, went there for reporting on the 9-11 commission trials that are going on right now that have been going on and could take another year or so to actually complete. So I got sent down there to do some on the ground reporting and it was an extremely crazy experience. So how did it even get set up in the first place? So about a month ago, I got... Um, this notification of press access being able to go there to report on these commissions. <clears throat> and it was the KSM, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed trial, along with four other dudes who they're charging with the 9-11 crime. So um, I got notified of this ability to go there, and my boss said, you can go. And it's actually really rare for me to be able to get out of the studio since I'm anchored to this desk and inside an office setting for five days out of every week. So it's really hard to get, you know, on on the ground field reporting and take time off the show. So I was really, really happy to be able to do it. And especially somewhere like Guantanamo, which I've been covering, you know, ever since I started journalism. Um, So it's just a really great opportunity. I'm really excited to go. And there was so much paperwork because, as we know, it's, you know, really secure site, probably one of the most secure sites in the world, heavily locked down. Uh, So it wasn't like any other trip. Plus, you're going to a country where we're not really permitted to go. So I was just like tons of paperwork, tons of red tape, security clearances, background checks. And like up until three days before I went, I was just like terrified that I did something wrong, like filled something wrong out on the form. And so basically until the moment that I got there, I was still just scared that I wasn't able to get in. And I was like, do they really know that I'm coming? Like, have they really done a background check and they know my politics and stuff? And I think that they can't really exclude any journalist from really coming um, if they go through the proper protocol, even if it's a really adversarial journalist who's been controversial and covering Gitmo and like not a very good light. Um, I don't really know. So I think that the only thing that they can really do is control the narrative once you get there, um, which they do very well. Um, So after we took literally three plane rides and a ferry, so think about just how hard it is for anyone to even get to this place. Yeah, I mean, it's it's, it's on on Cuba. So it's like, how how would you as a normal American like get to Cuba you would have to fly, like you have to literally fly from another country. I yeah. Think. And then you wouldn't have your passport stamped because then you go through all this other shit when you come back here about <laughs> why were you there and yeah, yeah. you're a communist and da da da. So we took these, you know, two regular flights and then this military charter flight. It was like this private charter flight that, that operates on the island called IBC. And so we get there. And it was just like totally locked down military. We, we hand in all our paperwork. And of course, everyone else is able to go right through. And I think there was like victims, family members, and other, also just visiting people who visited people on the base because there was like 5,000 people just living on this base. 
And so we were in the, this plane with all these people. They got immediately through. And then me and my cameraman were the last ones there because there was something wrong with our paperwork where <laughs> we were held up thinking that we might just be sent right back to Fort Lauderdale. <laughs> like the guy was just like, there's something wrong with the way that this is filled out. And so we were just like, fuck, we're just going to be sent back. Like I just knew that something was going to go wrong. I was like, no. <laughs> probably until you actually stepped foot there, you were probably just in denial that actually you were going like, yeah. to get to go in the first place. Yeah. So finally, after like an hour of being at this airport, they, they made all these phone calls and I was just trying not to freak out. And then they finally said, all right, you're in. And I was like, oh my God, thank God. So we take this little ferry with this guy who's basically our security escort. And what we quickly realize is that there's really not one moment that you're going to be at Guantanamo Bay that you're not going to be surrounded by military personnel. Yeah. Um, and, and so we get in the car and we're about to board the ferry onto the actual site. And, um, I, you know, I'm just trying to ask all these questions about what's going on. And immediately the guy kind of just laid down like that we're not able to film anything. He's like, anything that you can film, we need to tell you that you need to film it or that you can film it rather. And he said, and then every day, even though they're with us all day looking at our shots before we film them and approving where we can stand, et cetera, they still look through all of your footage at the end of the day and delete shots that they do not want you to have. So they, right off the bat, they kind of let you know that this is their, um, uh, that they can do this, which... And- it was already kind of intimidating. Yeah, and and you you described that they actually did end up deleting some of some yes. of it, but nothing really that important, right? Like, right, and that's another thing is that there's all these kind of low level people working there. There's a very high turnover rate of of the personnel who are on the base. So everyone that we talked to was was. Um, relatively low level um that were kind of escorting us around they'd been deployed there for either six or nine months maybe a year um and it's just part of their deployment yeah and uh so the people who actually were looking at our footage at the end of the day were mostly just like one of them was just like a private who that was her first deployment and so I realized that it wasn't as like crazy as I thought it would be where we had like a you know a general analyzing all the questions that I asked and, you know, vetting every single thing that I did with these interviews and stuff. So it wasn't as intense as I thought it would be. All they really cared about was making sure that you didn't film any sort of sites because for some reason they're still paranoid that Cuba is going to like bomb (laughs) like electrical facilities and water towers and shit in in Gitmo, which is just absurd. But so it, it just, this pressure and kind of, um, nervous nature that you're even conducting journalism the entire time and and even just like doing stand-ups or walking around you're just kind of always on edge because you know people are just surrounding you watching you so that was just a little bit nerve-wracking as well just even just trying to do my job um so right when we get to the actual detention site so a couple background um facts about Guantanamo Bay, which I didn't realize until I actually was there or until I was researching the trip. In 1903, Cuba and the U.S. made an agreement. Um, It was a treaty signed after the Spanish-American War that they were going to adopt this staging area for cargo, 
for different resources, you know, on the way to the Panama Canal and all these different sites in that whole general region, um, Haiti, et cetera, that we could have like a staging area for our military. Yeah. And Cuba at the time wasn't an adversary of the U.S., so they agreed to this treaty. And, and I think at the time it was like $2,000 um, to rent out this space, which was Guantanamo Bay Naval Base. Um, so that that was fine for about 40 or 50 years until the Cold War, obviously. And I think it was until about 1956 where Cuba, of course, became an enemy of the state where Cuba said, get the fuck out. Like, we don't want this base here anymore. We refuse to have this base. It's an occupied territory in an adversarial, like, I mean, in a state that we are enemies with. So we want you guys to leave. And at that time, the U.S. said, no, we're not going to leave because the original treaty 60 years ago, 50 years ago, said that both parties need to agree. (laughs) And guess what? We don't. So it doesn't matter that Cuba said, get the hell out. The U.S. was like, no, we don't want to. Jesus so Christ. up until then, I think the interest on the rental of the base went up to like $4,500 or $4,300. And the U.S. was still paying this amount up until today. They still pay Cuba every year $4,300 that Cuba has never cashed a check. It's just sitting in fuck? some bank account just sitting there. Interesting. And in 1992 was when this giant, it's called the Joint Task Force Detention Facility was built, which was a giant extension on the original naval base. So you have Guantanamo Bay Naval Base, which is a huge area, um, you know, where Marines, Coast Guard, Army, all these people come through, stage their, our base there, do operations, etc. And then you have this Joint Task Force Detention Facility that was built in 1992, I think originally, to house and jail, like, migrants who were coming through, like, Haitian refugees, Cuban um, exiles who were trying to flee. So they would kind of house them there and then like try to send them back. One makes me wonder if they had any terrorism suspects from like the, you know, in the nineties. Oh, absolutely. No. Yeah, no, exactly. And so that infamous camp x-ray where the original Gitmo detainees were sent with the goggles and the black bags and the, you know, the earphones yeah. and the orange jumpsuits thrown yeah. into those open air prison cells, that was actually already built for wow, that's whatever was happening before. Yeah. For either like, well, I guess that makes sense because they, because yeah. they, I think it, when was the actual like order to send people in, instated at Gitmo? Was it like in October of 2001? Yeah. So it would have been way too fast for them to actually right. build the prison. Yeah. I mean that, I don't know what, I, how I imagine it in my mind, but that's, that totally explains. Yeah. Sort of, it explains a lot. That's, that's great. Thanks for giving the backstory about it. And then when the, when the original detainees came, they, they threw up a bunch of other makeshift, um, like little cages to, to accommodate for like the excess amount of detainees that they're bringing in. And I say detainees just because I'm kind of almost indoctrinated with the speak, get most speak it's prisoners. I mean, let's be honest. Yeah. They're all prisoners. Um, so, so we get to this detention facility site and immediately I'm talking to this guy, this really, really nice guy. And, that, and that's another thing you realize is that everyone's extraordinarily nice and accommodating in terms of the people who are bringing you around. And what I quickly found out is it's all part of this kind of PR 
purpose. Um, they don't like the press. The press is the last thing that they want anywhere near what they're doing. But obviously, in order to kind of put up the skies of transparency, they need press there. However, they make it extremely difficult for anyone to be actually covering the Gitmo beat on a regular basis because who the fuck can afford to get out there? It's hard to find a publication or some sort of international or national TV platform or media platform that will allow you and pay you and fund your expenses to continuously go out there and be covering like an ongoing story, AKA the, the tribunals or this commission, you know? Yeah. So they put the press, they, they drive me to this little, like these tents and they, they just look like these round tents and I'll actually attach a little photo slide to this timeline. So you can kind of see what I'm talking about. Cause it's kind of hard to explain without actually seeing photos of this, but they're, I think I, I think you sent a picture of one of them to me when you when you were there, right? It was like a, it's like a nice ass looking tent, but it's still yeah. a tent. Yeah, yeah, I mean. no, it's like it's like <laughs> army barracks. It's like, like I didn't know if I was going to be staying in like a little house or hotels or whatever. I was like, well, it's a base. I mean, I'm sure going to be staying in these hotels, and then they just drop us off at this, <laughs> these like dozens and dozens, almost like it looks like hundreds of these giant domed beige tents that just look like something right out of the army. Like you're going and going to like boot camp, you know, and I go in there and it's like an ice box. It's seriously like 40 degrees. This generator's like, like the whole time it's this AC blasting full speed. No, like there's just a mattress on a wooden look frame. Um, thank God I brought a blanket and pillow. <laughs> like, I don't know. I don't know what, I mean, they did tell you like, it's cold in there, you know, bring a pillow and bring like an extra blanket. If you, if you like get cold easily, thank God I did because yeah, I thought fuck. that they'd at least supply us like a pillow and blankets and stuff. And I thought, well, you know, they probably just start saying that in case people complain that they want to bring their own pillow or whatever. So thank God I brought all that stuff. I was like, wow, this is where we're going to be sleeping. This is really intense. Yeah. And that takes up a lot of room in your suitcase. So it's like, yeah, that's a good, I mean, good thing. <laughs> like you bring your own it. bedding yeah. wow. uh, and your towel and all that shit. Cause they, you know, cause the showers are outdoor. The showers are broken for like a day and a half that I was there too. And it's like scorching heat and humidity as well. So that's just setting the scene kind of, of how this place is. Oh, so the tents, so it wasn't cold because it was cold out at night. It was just, they were blasting it with AC inside the tent. Yeah. Yeah. They said okay. to keep the insects away, but I mean, I saw a shitload of insects in the tent. There's like a giant spider that went in my suitcase. And I was really scared, <laughs> <laughs> real scared. So this is the first, so you arrived there without really doing any interviews with anybody yet you arrived at yeah. your, your, your barracks and arrived there and then immediately when i got to these barracks i saw um carol rosenberg and lisa hajar these two women who are on the gitmo beat quite frequently one of them carol rosenberg works for the miami herald and she is probably the most like committed journalist to covering guantanamo since the beginning she's been there for 12 years she lives there like half the year in these fucking tents like that's how dedicated this woman is and she's just covering the minutia of like everything that happens and everyone should check out her like twitter feed if you want to be um on the day-to-day of what's going on there what's her so name it was again? Just, her name's carol rosenberg okay yeah we'll, we'll put a link on that and so we're i was just kind of like sitting down with them kind of getting a sense of what i could expect and you know what what was going on that i had missed earlier you know, in the, in the prior weeks on the day to day for these, these court 
commission hearings because um, it's just this extended trial that's going on for the quote five worst of the worst uh, guys nine eleven um, you know alleged nine eleven masterminds or whatever um, and so right after that I met with um, Colonel Lieutenant Colonel uh, Boguki who is one of the defense attorneys for. I want to say Ashiri. I'll get this guy's name. Actually, as I'm talking, I should have all these guys' names pulled up. Um, This is the guy who went on your show. Yeah, he's the guy who's come on my show. um, And he's really awesome. Which, and and before before I went to get him, I was like, why is this defense attorney who's like in the military, he's like a top brass in the military, he's defending this client who is potentially like... A criminal or who has potentially done really bad things. It was like, I wonder why he's able to be so outspoken and really militant about, you know, his client still getting tortured and like all the, all this crazy stuff that I, I, I just thought it was weird that they would allow him to kind of be so vocal about his kind of disgust and distaste for the entire process. Yeah. You would imagine that if like a guy like him went on your show and said those things, he'd be like, penalized or something yeah or demoted or something yeah so i was just interested that he was able to do that um so i immediately met up with him and luckily i had um, a contact with him before and so i did a really brief interview with him and just kind of got the lowdown on what was going on and he was reminding me that um this is stalled so much because his team was actually infiltrated with an fbi mole which is a a violation of attorney client privilege it makes your client not trust you it makes the defense team not trust each other they don't know who's working for the fbi they don't know who's infiltrating who he found out that there there's uh, microphones in the smoke detectors and the rooms that they were meeting and, and i mean all of this is illegal you could act like oh that's not surprising considering what we know about nsa spying and stuff but i mean this is pretty basic stuff when it comes to like how attorney client privilege is supposed to be yeah you wouldn't it's a total you wouldn't, violation you wouldn't expect the government to actually like try to interrupt a, a trial proceedings and and plant somebody on the defense team you know like that just seems really extremely fucked up yeah no it's totally crazy it's like look the government it's not like they're worried that these guys are going to be let off <laughs> like it's pretty clear that these guys are not going to be free um, so I don't know why the government would go to those lengths because it seems so counterintuitive. It seems like they would just be shooting themselves in the foot if they tried to do anything that would deter the process and elongate this already excruciatingly, painfully slow commissions. And so the fact that they did that and infiltrated the defense team has just caused this giant snowball effect where like actual lawyers have left, people have disbanded. And now they're just fighting to like make sure that they're not being infiltrated anymore. So that was really interesting. And then I ended up going out to dinner with him and another guy who was on the defense team. And they were just kind of talking about the ridiculousness of Gitmo, how you can't get a straight answer about anything. The first night was pretty low key. It was just kind of meeting up with the other journalists who were there, getting their perspective and, and just talking to these two defense guys. And, um, and then I went into the room. So there's this room outside of this main commission's jail court 
place that's surrounded with barbed wire that you can't take any photos of, that it's like extremely secure, guard towers surrounding it. This is where the actual five dudes are brought in and out. Is and, this Camp X-Ray? No, no, no. This is the actual like like court. Okay. Like the military commission's court. So it's so a it's separate like, facility from the prison? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. There's like five prisons. Interesting. On the base, and they're all different, and I'll explain them. Um, but this one was like just the actual court area. So you go in there, it's heavily, heavily secure. You can't actually sit in the courtroom with these people. You can only sit behind like a window and um, and watch the proceedings. A lot of people choose to watch the proceedings in this other facility that I actually did because I because you can freely leave. You don't have to stay there all day because like they don't allow in and out access if you're in the actual court, even if you're behind this dome. So I just chose to freely watch them in this other room where these TVs that you can see kind of everything happening still, and you can you know use the internet and and be like writing articles and stuff about what you're seeing. And when I went in there okay. to set up my internet access for the week, the one of the guys, uh, Miles Kagan's who was corresponding with me about the actual trip and kind of giving me all the clearance. He, I walk in and he was just like, oh, he's like, uh, we heard a lot about you. He's like, we, I've been looking at your art website for the last hour. And I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> I was just like, oh, no. <laughs> like he didn't vet you all the way until like yeah. you got there. He's just like, yeah, we're just been looking at your RT. Like, Yeah, yeah, episodes. yeah. I was just like, oh, no. Um <laughs> So I could just like, I think that he already kind of knew where my uh, perspective was coming from. Cause I mean, I have a lot of anti-government stuff on, on my art website. <laughs> like you can find that out pretty quickly. Um, and so then, so that night was pretty low key and the next two days were just totally packed with stuff. The next morning I woke up, um, what After happened having, in the trial that night? Was there anything? Oh, no, I didn't actually get to watch any of it. It was over by the time that I got there. Okay. So I just had set up the thing and kind of gotten my bearings about how to, how to like tap into it and, and watch it and get the internet all set up. And I went to bed that night and had like a horrific nightmare that everyone that I knew had gotten gunned down. <laughs> okay. And I like woke up in this a fucking icebox, like terrified. And I was like, oh my God, I'm in Gitmo. <laughs> this is horrible. <laughs> it was like a really horrible moment, <laughs> like being uh, jarred from a terrifying nightmare and then realizing where I was. And I was like, oh my God, this is so surreal. It sounds like civilians couldn't actually enter the courtroom and be sitting in there with the judge or anything that's is right. that correct right so the pl- the place where they allowed press or, or other people to sit was behind a window do you know if it was a like a piece of glass or if it was like a two-way mirror that the people in the courtroom couldn't see the people? that's a really good question that's so you, a really really good question so they never told i don't you. know okay no um but you it was totally transparent looking to you right yeah like, yeah yeah I, this is the first time I've ever heard this is you you told me that actual 9/11 victims family members were allowed down on the base given special clearance to get into some of these trials right which I've never heard of before so I, I'm I'm really curious like wh- who we you know who, which family members they are right if they have a specific interest like if it's you know because I know that during the Masawi trial they had people there who were like for 
the families of like United 93 because apparently he was supposed to be one of the pilots on that flight or I'd be interested to find out who they were. And- yeah, I can tell you an exact number. I'm just looking at Carol Rosenberg Twitter right now because she tweeted about it. I mean, I haven't been hearing very much about Gitmo in the news at all lately. So, I mean, it's good that there's there's reporters who are always there, but it's strange that and I don't really hear about them. You know, people like Glenn Greenwald and other sort of like liberal reporters don't really like talk about ongoing stuff at Gitmo. Right. It's that's what I thought was really strange, too, is because before I went there, I thought, why aren't we hearing anything about this? And you had told me that you hadn't seen anything on like Google News Alerts. And I was like, why? This is the trial of the century. This is like bringing these five accused for doing 9-11 to trial. And there was literally nothing about it. I was like getting increasingly paranoid about you going there because I was like, why is there nothing in the news? Like, what's going on? And then it just turns out no one's talking about it. I mean, it's not that it's like suspicious. It's just there's barely anyone fucking covering this. Right. Really, really strange. So, so I found the first guy, Ramsey Binal Sheeb, is the guy who is Boguki's client. So, this is a guy who claims that he has been still tortured. Of course, Obama claims that he ended the torture program, you know, when he got into office, especially at Gitmo. Obviously, we don't really know what's going on at CIA black sites around the world. I would imagine that rendition and torture is still taking place. But as far as the Gitmo torture program, that supposedly ended after the Bush administration. But according to multiple detainees, they claim that they are still being tortured with um, sensory deprivation, um, sleep deprivation, uh, you know, noises, lights, music, all in, all in their cells. And, and mind you, these people have been in solitary for like 13 years on top of being like excruciatingly tortured for years and years and years. I'm talking about the, there's like 15 or so people in the, the ultra secretive camp, Camp 7, which no one knows where it is and no one admitted to it existing until earlier this year when someone kind of snuck out the fact that there was this other camp on top of the camps that they had been telling the press existed and that these people were in this whole time. And officials wouldn't even confirm or deny until now the floodgates are kind of open. So everyone kind of was fucking around with them and kept talking about Camp 7 <laughs> just to like, like let them know that it's kind of, you know, the cat's out of the bag here. So the next morning I woke up at like eight because it's all military time. So if you like don't wake up really early, then you're, you're kind of missing out on a lot of shit that's going on. And they put up on the whiteboard in the middle of this area when they're giving specific tours. What I found out when I got there is that because these military commissions were going on, they weren't allowing access to a lot of other things on site that media could normally access if they go there any other time of the year. I had no idea about that. So I was really confused. I was like, wait, so we're coming for these commissions, but I can't go on the tour of the cell of the prison itself. And it's like, because everything's so heavily locked down, it's like, if you're going to report on the commissions, then you can't have access to anything else. And I was like, what the hell? So I was just like bummed out that I had no idea that that was the case. None of the information that I had gotten before that had told me that. You know, it was just like, wow, so we can't even see what these cells are like or anything, even though that would have also been like a PR, you know, like guided tour where they show you like probably the best cell and show you all the books that they can get and all that stuff. But still, I wanted to see it and get inside the prison. And so I was like, well, what the fuck can we do? Like, I was just like irritated at that point. I'm like, what can we do? We need to get as much footage as we possibly can. 
Boguki, the Colonel Boguki, who I who had had on my show, he set up this awesome tour of the Cuban perimeter. Like this is something that no one can really go see. And since I wanted to kind of do this background story about how this base even exists and how it's essentially this perpetual occupation of Cuba, um, and how you know out of all of the entire country of Cuba, the only Starbucks, McDonald's, and Subway are on this base. And how just the irony of having the secret torture house and like (laughs) indefinite detention of all these people existing in Cuba. It's like almost just this giant fuck you to the Cuban government on so many different levels. It's surreal that there's a McDonald's and a Starbucks there. I mean, are they like the employees there wear like Starbucks aprons and stuff? And what's so crazy is it's like they don't allow private enterprise in Cuba. So it's just so many different fuck yous to Cuba. Yeah, you know, like Cuba's like, it's disgusting that they have Starbucks and McDonald's on this base. So, I mean, how, how many people are there? It sounds like if they have those facilities, there's probably quite a few people living there. I mean. Yeah, no, I, there is. I think he said it was like 5,000 people. Wow. And okay. then there's like 2,000 just on the joint task force detention side. Wow. Yeah. Jesus Christ. Yeah. Um. And so that it was just all extremely intense how like giant this facility is and how much is like going on, you know, and how many people are employed there and and how much compartmentalization there is with the entire thing um, because there's a lot of it. So if you would have gotten there without this contact and and you didn't have and you said he had a vehicle like would you have been able to get back and forth to these places? No, 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 you need, you, you can't rent your own vehicle. You have to be escorted by these military people. So it's like only if they are able to bring you somewhere and only if you just hound people to get any sort of access or interviews with anyone. Um, and so after we did this little Cuban perimeter tour and I was like, it was just really cool to see how, you know, this is the only point of entry into Cuba and how it was actually able to freely be accessed until of course, they shut down and and how the cuban um military and like different people on cuba's side would just come and fuck with the marines all the time that are like based right there next to this perimeter and they'd go and like throw rocks at them and then they'd try to like like make little makeshift wind chimes and throw them over the fence so they can keep them up at night and then they'd blast like light into their barracks to try to just fuck with them what? It was just like really funny. Yeah, like all the Cubans would do this to the Marines because they wanted them to get the fuck out and just bother <laughs> them. <laughs> so then what happened is that they installed a 300 meter landmine in between the entire perimeter fences. What? So you have kind of like a shitty fence set up on the Cuban side. And then you have, of course, this crazy, you know, prison fence set up on the U.S. side and then 300 meters of landmines. And I mean, anyone oh who God. knows anything about landmines knows that once a landmine, once a landfield, landmine field, always a landmine field, you can't clean that shit up. Um, it's impossible. So Even though they said that crazy. they laid them into like these patterns that they could find them. They were like, we haven't found them all. So it's like, it's like, go at your own risk. You know, like, like try to get into Cuba or try to come in here at your own risk. Cause you might just be blown up by landmine. And it's just so sad because it's so gorgeous. You know, there's like so mountains weird. and gorgeous landscape that's just destroyed wow. with landmines. So on the way back from this little tour, 
we realized that Camp X-Ray, which was that iconic camp where the, you know, as we said, the prisoners were brought in those fields and the cages and was on the way back. And I said, oh my God, can we, can we stop by and check it out? And the guy said, well, we could stop at the top of this hill and you can kind of look at it from an aerial view. <laughs> and I was like, okay, whatever, we'll take whatever we can get. Like, <laughs> I just wanted to take whatever we can get. I was like, we can't actually get there, like, even though no one's there. And he was like, no. So you just learn pretty quickly that you just need to take what you can get and that everyone's going to tell you something different and that you just need to keep hounding everyone in order to get access to anything. So I just did a couple stand-ups in front of this aerial shot of X-ray and that you couldn't really see much and just talking about how, you know, these prisoners were sent there and um, they were kept on the scorching heat. And I mean, like, you stand out there and you get, like, fried in 10 minutes it's like 110 degrees humidity is at like 80 percent it's just insane and these people were just kept out in cages in these jumpsuits you know with like sensory deprivation tortured dogs sicked on them it's just unbelievable and and what was amazing is the only facility on that little prison site that had air conditioning was for the military dogs so it's just this irony that you have humans trapped like animals in cages and then you have like military dogs treated really well with air conditioning and stuff and then they just go like stick these dogs on these humans this is so disturbing do you actually did you actually get to see the dogs there no 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 no. the dogs were out of it because no one because no prisoners are in camp x-ray anymore so the dogs weren't there either but okay so then after that we get back to we went to the gitmo gift shop after that where it's this giant commissary where you know all the military people go and get alcohol and food and then there's this little guantanamo bay gift shop with a bunch of shirts and mugs and beer cozies and magnets and it all is just very very nice you know tropical tropical logos guantanamo bay best kept secret in cuba um you know all this like nice little fun fun little souvenirs that you can take home to your family little vacation spot souvenirs like (laughs) it was very very surreal to think that people just go there and just get these souvenirs and kind of just come visit their family there and go to the beach and just forget about the fact that there's you know 148 people still languishing there without charges or trial and all the sham you know Um, One of the women that I was driving around with, who was another kind of low-level military private, maybe, uh, she was talking about, um, I was just asking her if she was happy there and if she liked it. And she was just like, yeah, she's like, I really like the military. And she's like, I don't know how much longer I can be in it, though. She's like, considering everything that's going on. And I was like, what do you mean? She's like, I just don't know how much longer I want to serve for this country. And I was like, whoa. I mean, she knew that she was talking to a member of the press. Yeah. And it was just like a lot of people were pretty candid about kind of how they just were really disgusted, I think, with A, the constant warfare, the fact that Iraq is like, you know, we're sending people into Iraq again. But then on the other hand, she was like, I was like, well, yeah, what do you think about ISIS in Iraq right now? And she's like, oh, you know, wish we could just drop a nuclear bomb on them like we did in Japan. She's like, but the world wouldn't like that anymore. She's like, we can't really get away with that anymore. And I was like, uh... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's so fucking she's like crazy. you know the japanese rebuilt she's like they could just rebuild and i was like oh, okay i don't really know where you're going with this wow interesting um, and then um so when we got back from there um i did 
we realized that a tour had just left for Camp X-Ray, like an actual tour of Camp X-Ray, which is what I had just done this aerial shot of. And I was like, fuck, we just missed. And, it, and it's like, they don't tell you. You need to keep going to this whiteboard all day and checking to see if you can go. You know, and everyone's begging them. We're like, look, the commission's like we need to be able to have access to some something because we can't just be here reporting on these commissions like the commissions were like stalled on the second day so they weren't even like going on really like only going on for like an hour or two so we're like we need access to anything and they're like we'll just check back and we'll see when these tours are going on we get back we're 10 minutes late and everything's very prompt military time so you have to like be there on the dot or you miss it and i was like holy fuck we just missed for them to take us to the actual camp x-ray where we can walk around and do all the stuff Luckily, the woman drove us there since it was like only five to 10 minutes after they had left. So she drove us there to meet them, dropped us off. Thank God. And there, it was just so surreal to be able to go into the cells, these open air cages, see the guard tower, the barbed wire. It was just like very, very surreal, you know, just extremely dystopian. And these are these dystopian. infamous pictures you've seen before of the people like kneeling and totally. And, and the- orange jumpsuits with the weird totally and all the military dudes like in the you know in the guard towers with their sniper rifles and all that shit so that's no longer populated with prisoners that is no longer populated with prisoners because i think a it looks terrible (laughs) like it was just and b because they moved them to this other enclosed prison called camp delta after that i think like a month or two after after they were initially brought there so while I was at this little facility walking around, um, Miles Kagans, which was the lieutenant colonel, he's like the defense department spokesperson for detainee policy. And I was like asking him when I can get an interview with someone to talk about stuff. And he was like, oh, you know, kind of just giving me the runaround. And I was like, can you get on camera right now? <laughs> and I was like, because I, I was just like, I, I'm not going to miss any opportunity to get any of these people in uniform on camera. And I don't know when, cause they kept saying, Oh, there's going to be a joint press conference and Oh yeah, you'll have the ability to ask a question. I'm like, that's not good enough. Yeah. Like, and who knows that that's even going to happen, you know? And if they ask you a question, in the press conference, they could be like, uh, we can't speak on that next question. Yeah. And there are probably I, people who are specifically coached to handle the press. Exactly. And, and- so, before I talked to this guy, he was, there was this other guy, he was another private, um, or a sergeant rather. And there's so many different fucking, and there's a commander, sergeant, lieutenant. I don't, I, I forget who's like on top of who in terms of the chain of command, but this other sergeant, I was like, can I get both of you on camera? So the first guy, I was like, I just want to ask you really basic questions about, you know, how many cells there are, like how many detainees came and some basic questions about camp X-ray and and so I, I started asking him questions. And when I when he said the detainees were brought here, I was like, what detainees? Who were they? And he said the, they were the people who were involved in 9-11. And he's talking <laughs> about, I mean, think about who he's talking about. He's talking about hundreds of people that were swept up in literally a dragnet. Over 600 or something like that. Right? In Afghanistan, you know, I, and I think mostly in Afghanistan because we're talking about way early on, you know. Yeah. And his and his commander, which was Commander uh, Miles Kagan's, came over and he was like, "That's wrong." He was like, "That's completely wrong. You can't say that." And <laughs> and I just felt so embarrassed because I was like, "Here's this guy. I mean, he's an extremely nice guy, but at the same time, he doesn't know anything." 
you would think that if you were being stationed and deployed to Gitmo, and mind you, this guy had just come back from like a year tour in Afghanistan, you would think that he would want to know. You would think that he would be inclined to know what is happening. He's dealing with the press on a day-to-day basis in this facility. There's like almost like just innuendo rumor and disinfo that sort of circulates among soldiers because of the lack of information that they're given. Yeah. And, and what I was saying before about compartmentalization, it really is true because they, they have this high turnover rate for people because they don't, they purposefully don't want them to know much. They don't want them to have the answers for these questions. They want them to kind of just have very surface, surface level knowledge that they can kind of just attract the press from whatever they're asking saying, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Exactly. And so you just have like five people that are kind of the representatives and these like policy heads that that are trained to deal with press. And that's compartmentalized, too, because you would think that you could just get one guy on camera because it's so hard to track them down and just ask them anything. Mm-hmm. But but what you'll see is that they'll deflect almost every question. Oh, that's not my department. That's not my department. That's their policy department. And you're like, fuck. So now I have to set up an interview with that guy. Like, how hard is it going to track down that guy? Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so Miles Kagan's when I got him on camera, you know, very nice. I was like, please, can I, you know, let's get you on camera right here. And I just like fucking fired off like 20 rapid fire, the hardest hitting questions that I could about everything that I could think of about what his policy side was, which is, is he, if he's the spokesperson for detainees and fucking am and ask you as many questions as they can about detainees, you know, yeah. the questions that I asked him was um, about the just why is this process so slow for these people, what, is it all just political theater? The fact that these Yemenis can't go back to Yemen, and he, and then what about the five Taliban dudes that are in Qatar? You know that got traded for Bo Bergdahl, and I was like, so what were they charged with? Like, why were they able to leave if they were supposed high level Taliban fighters? You know, and then he was like, well, basically there are a lot of people here that are neither guilty nor innocent, and that will never be charged. Because we don't have enough on them to charge them. And it's like, well, then how the fuck does that mean they're not innocent? If you yeah. don't have anything to charge these people with, what does that mean? Yeah, they're innocent by default. I mean, yeah. just... <laughs> so it's like he couldn't even like, you know, it's just like that kind of answers. Yeah. So after that, I could tell that he kind of just what wasn't really feeling me after that, like kind of bait and switched him there. But I mean, you have no choice. Back up really quick to the yeah. previous guy you were interviewing who said that the original group of people who were there are all 600 or above people who were originally put in Guantanamo were perpetrators that had something to do with 9-11. Didn't you say that that he actually told him to stop talking and then he was wrong and then he he asked to delete that part of the interview? No, he no, this was was so crazy. He didn't delete it. Really? Um I thought that they would when I got back to the site, but I think that they just completely forgot that that happened. So it's like a little bit less like um you can get away with some stuff. Yeah. Yeah, like so so the fact that, um, you know, that we had like this kind of low level private, like actually looking through our footage later, like she didn't know that that happened, you know? So she's kind of just fast forwarding, looking at these like sites and so just making just sure that we didn't for... get it. Yeah. Oh, she's weird. just looking for like security stuff. 
Wow. Which, yeah. So I was just like, oh shit, this is totally going to be deleted. And then it wasn't. And then I was like scared that all these questions I was going to be asking this guy would be deleted too. And I was like, well, if they don't like these questions and these answers, then I'm not going to be able to get anything. So I just thought like, I don't know what the hell I'm going to end up with. So we get back to the the site and then I was able to do a couple more interviews that night. And, um, and the next morning, this is where it gets really fascinating. The next morning, um, I'm trying to sleep in cause I'd been getting like three hours of sleep in this crazy tent and you're waking up <laughs> military time. Cause every, every morning on the dot at eight, they play the national anthem on all these blaring horns. Holy shit. Yeah. It's like a straight up, like, you know, boot camp style stuff where everyone salutes and did and you see like people mar- like getting out and marching and yeah, they do like the flag raising and um, these formations during this little like it's at 8 p.m. And then I think it's like it's 730 or something. Whenever the sun sets, they do it again. And so I wake up to, at 9 a.m. try to sleep through this blaring national anthem thing to someone knocking on the tent saying there's someone that wants to speak with you. And um, and I ran out there totally discombobulated thinking, what the fuck am I missing something? And I go out there and it's this top military brass. His name is Sterling, General Sterling or something. And he's really awesome and he's very friendly and he's sitting there at the table and he's just like my colleague, James Connell, who's the defense attorney for Omar al-Belushi, really wants to speak to you today. He wants to do an interview with you. And I said, that's great. And I, I, I honestly to tell you the truth, I didn't realize who Omar, Omar al-Belushi was at that point. I knew that he was one of the five dudes. I didn't know his story that much. And um, I had heard that this James Connell guy was really great. I heard that he was like really passionate. He was like one of the smartest dudes working on this whole case. Yeah. So I, I was just like, of course, I'd, I'd want to do an interview with him. That sounds great. And I knew that he was one of the only people other than guards who had been to Camp 7. I think he was actually one of the, like, the only person other than guards and security personnel that had been to Camp 7. So I was just really excited to talk to him about a lot of stuff. And and I was like, yeah, absolutely, I'd do this interview with him. And he was like, well, when can you do it? And I said, well, we have all these other tours lined up to go see these other facilities. I was like, the only time I can do it is 2 o'clock. And he said, well, that's during the commissions. And he said, but he can leave to meet with you because it's very important to him that he does this with you. And I was like, wow, that's so cool. I don't know why this guy wants to do an interview with me so badly. I'm really honored and excited. And so we set up this interview time and between that time and the interview time, we went and were able to see Camp Delta, which was the camp where the detainees were moved from the open air prison to Camp Delta, which was also empty right now. And now you have all the prisoners living in the three remaining camps, which is Camp 5, Camp 6, and Camp 7. Camp 7 is the uber-secretive one that no one knows and no one even admitted to existing where there's like 15 people being held in utter solitary and probably the worst conditions you can think of. Camp 5 and 6, one of them is communal living and the other one is just a a normal maximum security prison. So for the quote compliant and quote non-compliant detainees the fuck so this uh, this one you mentioned in between those two camp do you say camp five yeah that that one has communal yeah so can actually camp six has communal living like where not communal living where they're all like living together but communal where they can go and congregate play cards interesting they still live in their cells but they can like i'm sure that's where a lot of people who are just 
going through the motions. All the hunger strikers are considered non-compliant. Yeah. So even though they are probably a hundred percent innocent, um, they're abiding by all the laws because of the fact that they refuse to eat. They're considered non-compliant prisoners and punished in the maximum security prison where they're isolated. So we were able to see the, the outside of all three of those camps, not camp seven, but camp Delta and then camp five and six. So we were able to see just how fucking crazy it is. I mean, it just like, looks like very maximum security prison covered in barbed wire, very locked down. So that's we were really, able to get in. So that's really different than the way they it's portrayed to the public. Because even myself, I didn't really think of it as different prisons with different levels right. of dangerous prisoners. I just thought, okay, there's this one prison there, and they're all in the in the prison right. together. But it seems as if the military has designated certain ones as being less dangerous than others. They let a certain prison, specifically there, the Camp Five, they let them congregate, and that kind of sort of pokes a hole in this idea that they're all terrorists or that they're all like sort of on the same level of danger. Absolutely. And I think really the only prisoners that they have anything on is at Camp 7. So we're talking about 15 people yeah, out of wow. 148. I agree with you. I think that all the rest of the people at Camp at Camp 5 and 6 are all probably have zero on them. In fact, I pretty much know they do. The fact that they knew that so many of them were innocent from the get-go... And that doesn't change. I mean, these people are still innocent. No, and he and he even went as far as saying something like it would be like a huge PR disaster if, if they out. released them because it's like the whole point was they were these dangerous terrorists. So exactly. Like, if they release these people, then it will be revealed to the world that they were completely innocent. And that's the whole point of Gitmo is that it's all a PR front. That's literally what it is. Like, that's why these people are still there. It's to save face for these administrations, Robbie. So it's like, basically, these people are just suffering and have no lives um, forever. And they just know that they're going to be stuck there for as long pending the war on terror, whatever the fuck that is. And I kept asking people, don't you see a problem with that? Like, like, Miles Kagan was just like, well, this is totally within the guidelines of every war. He's like, prisoners of war, they're kept pending the end of hostilities. And I was like, this is a different war. He, so, wait, wait, wait. So, he actually called them, he said he compared them to prisoners yeah. of war? Yeah, he compared them to, like, everyone else that gets swept up in prisoners of war. And he was like, this is totally normal for countries to do this That's pending the end of hostilities. And I said... I said, but this combatants. is different. And I said, this is different. This isn't pending the end of hostilities. I was like, there's no fucking end of hostilities. This is a war with no geographical borders and no timeline. It can be anywhere and it will go on for decades. Like that's not war. It's really weird that he would have told you that because I thought the whole point of designating them as enemy combatants was simply because that it's not comparable to a real war. Because prisoners of war are protected under the Geneva Convention, so it is extremely different. It's it, so many things don't make sense. God, how weird. Yeah, and so, and so I did. Um, I did this other interview. So I did two on-camera interviews. One was with Miles Kagan, and then was another one was with this other guy Gressback, and he was the like another policy guy for like the actual prisoners in a, in a so so 
Miles Kagan's was the policy director for like detainee release policy and shit. So I like asked him all the questions about like the, the release and, you know, all these different things. And then with the Gressback guy, when I was, when I was able to get him on camera, I just hammered him about the hunger strikers and all the people who are in there, you know, the compliant versus non-compliant, all that stuff. So I wanted to really get an insight on that because of course as we know there's still dozens of people on the hunger strike the dod stopped issuing the briefing of how many people are on it per day um and they've actually changed the name another euphemism change just like overseas contingency operations just like enhanced interrogation techniques which by the way the new york times was calling until last week they didn't call it torture until last week insane that's how fucking compliant that publication is to the government line so it was just another one of those euphemisms to make it seem like these people are not striking okay so now they're called long-term non-religious fasters oh my god yeah so i get this guy on camera his name's Grassback, and I just like hammered him about like why did you change the name of this? And he was like, Well, because then we'd be speculating on their motives. And I was like, Really? Like you don't know that these people are striking indefinite detention? I mean, it just you know, all of these deflecting answers, it's just like, come on. Like that's basically was his answer for everything. Is that no comment or we can't speculate? That would be speculating on their motivations. And he was like, he was like, we can't speculate on their motivations. He's like, they're getting three square meals a day and they're getting treated really well. And I was like, to be fair, sir, I don't think that they're protesting the food quality. Like, I, and I just said, like, if you were locked away for decades and had no end in sight to your imprisonment and definite detention, and if you were innocent, that's your only means to resist. That's how prisoners have resisted from the beginning of time. That's how they get attention to their case. And if you're not issuing that information to the press, and if you're downplaying their strike, that's like criminal in a sense. You're, 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 you're squelching these people's capacity to tell the world about what's happening to them. Yeah. One per one poor guy, Manasan, has been on strike for five years straight. He's been force fed five thousand times. What His life fuck? has been. His life has been reduced to a feeding tube. Let me describe to you really quickly how this process works. It's called a torture chair. And I described it to this guy in detail, just seeing if he would react and he didn't. But they, they get, so twice a day, they get strapped down in a torture chair. Sometimes they're dragged. Sometimes they walk willingly. They, they call it a torture chair because it looks like an electric chair. They strap your head in. They strap your arms and feet in. They give you laxatives so you defecate and piss yourself and you're sitting in your own filth for about two hours after the force feeding occurs. They shove tubes that are too big for your nostrils. Um, They shove it all the way down to your stomach. They pump excess water into it. It's called water torture because they don't give a fuck about these people. They're not, I'm sure that if I were to go in there and get force fed, it'd be a much more pleasant experience that these people endure. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's like. I mean, just imagine how probably just like disgusted the guards are at this point to like be doing like the, how pissed they are at these people. And they just probably just do it really callously. Um, they shove the feeding tombs in twice a day. And it's already extremely painful to have this happen once. Imagine twice. Your nostrils are almost closed up. They're infected. Um, I mean, it's just extraordinarily inhumane and barbaric and just really really sad existence 
Um, finally, this one guy, Aman Hassan, who's been cleared for release and he's been striking for five years, I think he finally filed the first successful lawsuit that a district court judge here has granted. And I don't know if that can supersede the policy. I don't know what can happen. I don't really know much that can happen outside of this court tribunal system from the outside world that ha- that would have an effect on policies that actually are changed. But I know that there was this other nurse that actually refused to do the, the force feeding procedure that was that Carol Rosenberg found out about. Someone admitted it to her, and then it became this viral news story. So I was able to ask this guy Gressback about it. I said, where is that nurse now? Did they get fired? No comment, no comment, no comment. So then I meet with a defense attorney, James Connell, the guy who wanted to meet with me. Sorry, if you want to interrupt me at all, no, let no, me no. know. No, I'm, I'm riveted. So the guy, I I sit down with him. He's, you know, I had no idea really what to expect. This guy is a fucking badass, dude. This guy's a hero. He gave up his military career. He gave up a lot, um, any sort of promotion. And so did everyone really working on the defense for these guys um, because he's dedicated to truth and justice. Um, He's dedicated to accountability for torture. and And he's just dedicated to his client because he's convinced that his client's innocent. Um, he said that he was at first asked to be a prosecutor and he declined it because he said he didn't see the evidence. Like he didn't believe in the case. So he said, I'll be a defense attorney. Like and what? He, like for, for the, this specific yeah, case? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It's just really so that's, fascinating. That's how that, good he is. Yeah. It's just fascinating to think that you're in this extremely small, closed system. Everybody on either side of the trial is going to be a military individual, which in and of itself just makes it seem like anything like that would be rigged from the get-go because why would anybody in the military like truly want to defend these people? You know, they're like taught to exactly. hate them so much. But, you know, this guy actually has gone as far as saying that he thinks his client is innocent to you, which is a pretty huge thing. I mean, a lot of defense attorneys won't actually say that in an impassioned way. So, exactly. I mean, that's, that's, I mean, that's a really meaningful takeaway from it. it. It's, it is really amazing, Robbie. And, and, and that's, you know, there's, a, there's multiple problems with Guantanamo. One is the fact that because of this shit show, political theater bullshit, that these trials can't happen here. Millions of trials, not millions, thousands of trials have happened here. Alleged terrorists, militants, murderers. The fact that these trials have to be done at Guantanamo Bay is absurd. It, you, it makes it extremely difficult for press to get there. And it makes it extremely difficult for all of these people who are on the defense teams to continue to travel there and do this. It's ext- it just makes it the most difficult you can possibly make it. And it also makes these guys' lives a living hell because the prosecution paints these people as terrorist apologists. And every time the prosecution would open a statement, they'd tell another story about 9-11, 9-11, 9-11, 9-11. I don't know if because the 9-11 victims' family members were there or what. But it just seemed like it's a giant facade, it's a dog and pony show, that you want to make it seem to the world that the five, quote, worst of the worst 9-11 suspects 
are even getting a fair trial. That's how free this country is. That we would even give the five people who, quote, did 9-11 a fair trial. Meanwhile, on the other side of the base, there's a hundred and God knows how many people, I think 148, I don't know if that's including the 15 or not. If it is, then it's less, that are have no trial, no charges, nothing. So it's these ex- dueling narratives that are totally dichotomous and the narrative to the public is that you just hear about these commissions, you know, and everyone else, I guess, must be guilty and they'll get their day in court someday. So that to me just ir- is irritating because I know the truth. And I think a lot of people just have painted like Guantanamo just full of terrorists, you know, and, and so when I'm sitting down with this guy, James Connell and, and hearing his story is just absolutely amazing. Um, I found out that his client, Amar al-Balushi, is actually the nephew of Khalid Sheikh Muhammad, okay? So there's there's three other people on trial. I think maybe probably two of them were compartmentalized in the same way that the Manhattan Project was broken down, where a lot of people didn't know what they were doing. That's why when, when people kind of poo-poo the, the idea of conspiracies and, oh, people would be able to find out, that's not true. A lot of people are compartmentalized into a larger operation, of course. And that's the way it is with everything. And as you pointed out, they I mean, it's not just the compartmentalization that may work so well. It's that a lot of these employees at the base are like are only there for like a year and then they're sent home. It explains perfectly why that at any given time, most of them aren't really even able to give information because they don't yeah. really know it. They're yeah. just kept in the dark. Yeah. And so James Connell was saying that his client who was uh, operating this travel agency in Pakistan or something. I think he's Kuwaiti born. I'm, I'm not positive at all. And I, I'll do a giant report about this. I'm breaking the set and break down the, these details, obviously with precision. Um, but he was operating some travel agency and, and he was living with his wife and, and children. And um, he did this on a daily basis. He'd issued visas, passports, um, you know, transferring money from one place to another. This was his job. Um, never had any sort of past transgressions about terrorism or anything. I mean, he probably had no idea what his uncle was doing. And this is to say, and I'm actually saying this with pre, pre preposition that Khalid Sheikh Muhammad's even guilty. As far as we know, Khalid Sheikh Muhammad could be a fucking deranged lunatic with delusions of grandeur. I have absolutely no idea what these people you know, what the evidence actually is. I, I heard that there is a lot of evidence before even the torture took place. Cause as we know, anything that was accumulated through torture is obviously impermissible Yeah. on the actual court, which is, which is delaying a shitload of stuff too. And this torture report coming out is probably going to throw a wrench in a lot of shit. But so other than, other than the intelligence that was accumulated through torture, we have no idea yet what these charges are going to consist of what they were able to get before. And I, I know that they said that they have like a bunch of information on Khalid Sheikh Mohammed and some other guy that actually does point to a lot of nefarious shit. They said there's forensic evidence that ties him to the Daniel Pearl beheading. All that stuff aside, this Omar Belushi guy basically is wrapped up into this trial because he facilitated a wire transfer. One of the many wire transfers that somehow got in the hands of the hijackers, da-da-da-da-da, down the chain of command, blah, 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 blah. He had no idea what he was doing. He found out about 9-11 the day that we did. Um, He had no clue or prior knowledge or anything. But because he 
did this part of it because he conducted this particular transfer, he is now charged equal to the other four perpetrators, which to me is outrageous because if you can prove that he was in the dark and that he was compartmentalizing some giant operation, is he worthy of being executed in the same way that you may have much more dirt or much more proof that someone was actually complicit and in the know other than him? And I I think that's another reason all these things are being done at this military commissions because almost the standard law doesn't apply because I know that this is a precedent back in some other case that you can't try like a, a lump group of people together for the same crime, especially if they're all different levels. Yeah, that's that's the key point is that if they have all this evidence already that they think is like a slam dunk for Klitschik Muhammad, and then all this guy did was facilitate a wire transfer, he's pleading ignorance or like he didn't know what it was for, then clearly they should be tried separately. So it right. just, just seems another ploy on their part to try them together to make it seem like they're all on the equal, exactly. know, equal level of criminality. And, a, and another thing that this guy said was that why is it that you don't know about what happened to my client? Because I, I was embarrassed. I was like, I honestly don't know much about your client. He was like, no, that's on purpose. He said, you don't know anything about my client for a reason. He said, you know, people think what they know about Gitmo because of what's come out in the press. And he was like, and of course, that's only if you've been following it. You know about the gun being pointed to Ramsey's head or, or Ben Al-Sheib's head. You know about Khalid Sheikh Muhammad being waterboarded 183 times and them trying to force him to make a vacuum cleaner to tr- keep him from going crazy. And they said, you don't know what happened to my client. Why? Because if you did, heads would roll. He said, he said, I'm not allowed to say anything. He said, I, my client is not allowed any communication. He wasn't allowed to even call his father when his father died. He's allowed one phone call every year, I think, to his family. Wasn't even allowed to call his dad when he di- or call his mom when his father died. And he said that you can't find out any circumstances of of specifics about what they actually like anything else about him specifics about the torture and specifics about the the, his guilt why he said because then it would change the narrative of the worst of the worst he said they can't afford to let information come out about that might change the narrative about these people because they don't want people to start questioning that these people might not be the worst of the worst and that they might not be guilty he said it's all very, very on purpose. He said they, you know, people might think the government's incompetent. Oh, it came out. Oh, look, they, you know, oh, it, it got declassified. Someone leaked this document of the waterboarding. No, 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 no. It's all very precisely inserted in the public narrative for a very specific reason. He said the most absurd thing of all is that Catherine Bigelow, the director of Zero Dark Thirty, has classified information about his client. Omar al Belushi that he can't get. That's he so cannot get the information. Up. That's so wrong. It's so fucked up. When Glenn Greenwald, a, a, a comparator to Lenny Riefenstahl, the Nazi filmmaker, mm-hmm. like people were like really mad at. Like I remember even like some people who were like mostly supportive of him were. Like, oh, that's like a that's like a little bit hyperbolic, don't you think? Like to call her that. From what you just told me, it's not at all. Like the fact that she was given. <laughs> Secret U.S. government information that even the defense attorney for this guy doesn't have when he and and 
correct me if I'm wrong on this, but isn't his client portrayed in the film? Yes, and that's and that's what's so disturbing about it is that his client is the dude in the film that was tortured incessantly and that allegedly gave up the compounds of Bin Laden. So that's fake, 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 fake. So that's going to be so. So here's what will happen. What, it's like if this guy's story ever got out, that would be the context in which the press would respond to it. They'd be like, so and so from like who was portrayed in Zero Dark Thirty is giving the you know the compound the uh, information about Bin Laden's compound under torture. Like exactly. So it's, it's exactly in that in that sense, it's almost what exactly what he's talking about about these other leaks it's just another kind of leak it's just right. like they're exactly. portraying this narrative in the form of a hollywood film exactly. instead of a news report exactly and there and it isn't true that's the craziest part is that it, it's like it, it's a lie like he never gave up any sort of compounds about bin laden he was like they mixed in his they put him as the face of this movie zero dark 30 and they made it up shit too like in order, exactly is what you just said, in order to make people think like, oh, well, you know, I guess the torture did work. Like God. at least we got Bin Laden's compound. Yeah. And it's like a new guy. It's like, we don't know who this guy is. So it's right. like, why would people, you know, people just automatically believe it. It's just like right. a new character, a new player in the 9-11 saga. It's so crazy. I'm trying to think of what else he told me. He told me about Camp 7, how he was black, like not black bag, but that the, it was like garbage bags surrounding him in the car. He was driven around in circles for 45 minutes so he can get discombobulated. And then he wasn't able to see the outside of the prison. He was only able to see when he was sitting right in front of his client. In wait, this wait, wait, prison. wait, 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 wait. Go over that again. You're, you're yeah, talking so, about the defense attorney was like, yes. dis, was like purposely disoriented? Yes. yeah. Because that's how secretive Camp 7. And he said, this is how absurd this place is. He was like, they're so terrified because they tortured the shit out of so many people. They've overclassified everything. He said, other than very bare bones facts about my client. He said, I can't get any information about my client. It's all classified. Everything's classified. classified Even the fact that who? I... By the government. But is it like... Is it like the CIA or the FBI? I don't know. And I asked them, I said, how much jurisdiction does the CIA have over this? He said a lot. A lot. God damn. And so the CIA, I don't know. And I think the CIA is actually operating Camp 7 because I can't imagine any other fucking reason why it's so absurd. And it's like, why is this being, he was just like, there's no reason for this camp to be this. And he's like, unless you just don't want us to, I mean, I guess that's the thing is they just don't want any information to come out about this camp, about what it's really like that these people are being held in and like the worst of the worst. But it was funny. He was talking about the worst of the worst thing. He said, you know, first it was 800 people that were the worst of the worst. And then it was 600 people. And then it was 400 people. And then it was 200 people. And he was like, and now it's these five. He's like, don't you think that's odd? It's just like, it's just a blanket label you want to throw on people that you don't want to talk about the facts. Yeah. Well, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, of course. Yeah. And and so the, this interview was so great and it was, it was just mind blowing to hear like this passion in this guy's voice and how he's just, you know, this is just his life. He's just so committed to this case and, and how absurdly frustrating it is for him um, to be dealing with with kind of all this bureaucracy and bullshit and classification and secrecy and not being able to even tell anyone out on the outside world what's really happening and what his client goes through and 
and all this stuff. And, um, and he said that, I don't know if it was because of some sort of fighting for legal battling for a long time, but he said after like 10 years of fighting, they were finally able to get access to show their clients notes and to also show them certain films. And I don't know how that works because if these people are in solitary for like 12 or, you know, 23 hours a day, maybe they just get one hour to like maybe see a note or, you know, like go outside. I'm not really actually sure, but I do know that they're able to be shown notes. And I do know that, um, they can see movies. I think if they, if, if there's a reason, and I think that this client wanted to see zero dark 30 because it was about him. And it's actually just really sad. Um, he watched it and uh, apparently he was just so re-traumatized from seeing the torture scenes that he wasn't able to speak for quite a while. Um, and then we're talking about, I mean, you know, years after that happened to him and it's just really sad. I mean, this guy, the defense attorney just said, you know, it's such an intense experience for me to go in there and, and deal with this and, and see my, my client. And then he said, and I, and I decompress and I go get a beer and go home. And he said, my client goes back and stares at white walls Jesus, and silence. Um, and, and, and I just don't know how these people are surviving. I mean, if you, you haven't, if you aren't insane after being going through the torture, the solitary for 12, 13 years would do me in, man. I mean, I, the fact that these people, a lot of them are still able to like fluent in English, still able to like joke around, um, and, you know, and just be really like candid and, and really like intelligent and be like hungry for literature and stuff. And he said, another sad thing is that they've only allowed like five books in the last 10 years, the same ones. And he said that his clients read him like 30 times and he, and they're trying to do this book drive and they're trying to convince them for some sort of intellectual stimulation that they can have in their cell. So they're not just staring at these walls all day. And he said, and this is really sad, Robbie. He said that he was like, do you remember that story that came out in the press about how the prisoner's favorite book here is 50 shades of gray? And I said, no, I was like, what is that about? And he said, well, this is really sad. He said, so after having no new books for years and years, you know, and just kind of having almost the same thing to look at, you probably have already memorized them like powder. Remember that movie powder where you can like say the page numbers and like tell you what's on (laughs) the pages. (laughs) He said that one day the guard comes into, you know, opens that little slot, gives, gives Omar al-Balushi a book. And he's like, here, buddy, we got a new book for you. And it was 50 shades of gray. What the fuck? So he's just and like mocking him. Almost. Exactly. And so obviously he realized it was like a smut book. I mean, these dudes are Muslim. Like yeah. this is fucking extremely offensive. That's why all the sexual degrading torture and humiliation, like rubbing menstrual blood on people's faces. Like that's why it, this shit is so fucking offensive to the Islamic like culture. It's like insane. And you can't understand it unless you know a little bit about that. So it might seem funny to people, but it's not fucking funny. It's like the biggest insult that you could possibly do. All right. Especially like, because you can't see another woman, like it's unclean, like uncouth. And like these women were like parading around like lingerie and like smearing menstrual blood on people's faces. Like fucking vile, dude. So weird. Anyway. So so do you think it was, did he describe it like it was just a soldier trying to fuck with him? Yeah. And so this was so sad though, because if you look up 50 shades of gray Gitmo, you'll see that story still circulated. Oh, it's their favorite book at Gitmo. Guess these guys. 
guys are having fun. Oh my god, it's like the smut. Bin Laden. It's like the story about exactly. Bin Laden looking at porn. Exactly, oh it's like god. his porn compound. And so he said that when he met with his client next, his client said, "Look at what they tried to give me," and he was like, "Take this from me." Like, I don't want this. It's just really, there's just so many sad stories, you know? Yeah. It's like, here's the one book you give them. And it's like this fucking, it's just sick, dude. Wow. These people are fucking sick. And then they leak to the press, the story to like mock the prisoners. And so I, you know, I had this great interview with this guy and then I'm, I'm just kind of just overwhelmed at all the shit that he told me. And then, um, you know, we have dinner and then I get this phone call from, well, basically what I found out is that. The only thing that the detainees, and not just these five guys, but all the detainees at the entire facility, so I'm talking about like 148 people, they only get RT. They watch RT. They get it on tape every day, essentially. Like they're lawyers or something, or someone provides this for them. And they all fucking love my show, man. Like they, he was just like, look, everyone's really, really happy that you're here. They can't believe it. Um, they love breaking the set so much. And he even just told me, he was like, my client obsessively watches your show. He always tells me every time I see him, he's like, did you see Abby's show yesterday? (laughs) (laughs) Did you see breaking the set? And he was like, I want you to, you know, say it exactly like Abby said it here. And like, tells him like a line that I said, (laughs) like a, like a little like rant that I gave. And it just, it's just, it it just like warmed my heart. I was like, my God, I mean, you can hear it's so vindicating to think, you know, you don't, you're very underappreciated. You, the world makes fun of you for working RT. People think you're a fucking joke because they're just brainwashed and stupid and lacking any critical thinking. And they just like, they think that, you know, anything on RT is propaganda because they're just completely uncritical thinking morons who can't discern between like, let's debate facts and let's talk about why we need this platform in order to tell truths that like literally no other network will allow you to. And so you can hear all that shit all day. You can see the world demonizing Russia and by proxy you're demonized. You can see even just people who thank you for your work and, and like the show. But when you hear that the detainees at Guantanamo Bay watch your show every day and like it keeps them going in a sense to know that people still talk about Gitmo and haven't forgotten about them like I don't know of any other vindicating thing that would be more powerful than that like that just convinced me like we're on the right track man like yeah I'm doing I'm doing an okay job (laughs) like these people it means a lot to these people these prisoners and that's all I fucking care about and and you already sort of we we had a talk before we did this uh did this interview and I won't give out any of the details that I'm not supposed to, but I mean, from what you described to me, it was like, they were like basically telling you that you're like, you're, this is like your mission and no one else is like performing this and you need to like keep doing this. And, um, that, that it's like, it doesn't matter that like you're ostracized from the mainstream media because that's like the whole point is that you're Yeah, exactly. These two top brass is that they they were just really fascinated they were like how did you get involved in this like what do you and it wasn't just because they wanted to relay it back to the detainees like they were genuinely passionately excited and very grateful and these are top fucking military brass who really changed my mind about the military that there's these dudes fighting for truth and justice 
on the right side of history against all odds, given up their life to be at Guantanamo Bay. It's like, it's really emotional because these dudes, like, it, it was just so vindicating. Like, you know, the world can fucking hate you. And if these dudes appreciate you and are telling you that you need to keep doing what you're doing, like, it was fucking amazing, man. Like, one of them was just like, you know, just talking about RT and stuff. And I was like, well, he was just like, we couldn't believe it. He was like, we couldn't believe when we saw your show. He was like, to tell you the truth, like, we were just shocked that someone was out there <laughs> saying these things. They're like, because we feel the same way. He's like, you think that we're proud of torture? He's like, you think we're proud of the fact that there's no accountability? He was like, we need to restore credibility. We need to get justice. He's like, we need the world to be aware of what's going on. He's like, he's like, this whole brainwashing tour you went through, he's like, this place is the banality of evil. He's like, you have a McDonald's, a Starbucks, a Subway, and secret torture. He's like, it's time to like wake up. He's like, the rest of the world needs to wake up. And he was like, you know, I said, well, you know, yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing to hear you say that. I said, of course, I'd probably never be able to get a job anywhere else. And he was like, good. He was like, it, he's like being unhirable by the mainstream media was as a badge of honor, Abby. He said, that means you're on the right side of history. And I just like hugged these guys. I was like, thank you. Because you, I was just like, you guys are really big inspirations to me. And they're like, they're like, you're doing the right thing. You're like, you're on the right side of history. You're on the right side of history. They're like, no matter how many people fucking you make enemies with, they're like, you're not doing your job unless you make people pissed off and you have to keep doing it. And I'm sorry, I'm getting emotional. It's just like extremely intense. It's so, it's, I mean, it's just like everything you've been doing this whole time, you know, you, it's like, it's easy to see what, you know, that you're on the fringes of, of, of like what most people pay attention to or, or that maybe sometimes you feel like an outcast because of the way that like, you know, people that are trying to like climb the ladder in journalism don't, don't, you know, um, tell people to tune into your work or they just ignore you. But like, this is what really fucking matters is that like, there are people in the U S government who know how abhorrent it is that we're committing all these injustices, um, that that I mean, they they essentially were describing to you the situation as if they after nine eleven and that the go, entire U.S. government was like operating under you know this blanket of criminality and they were yeah. trying to like save it from that. And, and I think there's a lot of people, and and I really think that they there's a lot more people like them that have stayed in because they know like because just like we were saying before like they know that they need to stay in if they didn't stay in who else like there's so many people within the military that need to be operating within the military to to try to fight for this yeah yeah i mean it's it's like trying to change something within the system you know there are still good people out there Mm -hmm. who are in all these different systems and and who who really believe you know i mean it's not everybody in the military is a bad person or or you know complicit in this no i think there's a lot of good people and as we said there's a shitload of compartmentalization one the other guy we were talking about the torture and he was like he was just like you know this wasn't just he was like do you understand how many hands this passed through 
He's like, he's like, you know, Lindy England and these like low level hanging fruit, including the five dudes. I mean, to be honest, sure. Khalid Sheikh Muhammad probably is like a guilty psychopath of something. He wasn't the quote mastermind of Latin 11. Let's just get that out of the way. Look, Senator Bob Graham has been on the floor yelling for the past decade about the fact that Saudi Arabia intelligence had like intimate knowledge of financing hijackers. That's the tip of the iceberg. I mean, anyone who's going to be thrown under the bus for anything that has to do with the government, I'm not saying has to do with the government, but any government, whether it be Saudi Arabia, Pakistani intelligence, they're all low-hanging fruit. Further down the list, I mean, for a long time, it was like Zawahiri, or not Zawahiri, but uh, Zarqawi in Iraq was like Al-Qaeda number two. Remember how we would always hear that? And I mean... We haven't even caught the real mastermind of of Al Qaeda yet, which is Ayman al Zawahiri, and this guy Khalid Sheikh Muhammad was, from what I understand about him and everything I read about him, he was much more of like an influential like ideas man. He was like he was one of the guys that came up with a lot of these ideas of how to attack soft targets in the United States and in other places around the world, but. I mean, if you look at the actual 9-11 commission report about, I'd say almost all of the pre-planning story that they lay out in that report was derived from Khalid Sheikh Muhammad's testimony at Guantanamo Bay and also this guy named Abu uh, Zubdaya's testimony at Guantanamo Bay. And both of them were waterboarded over a hundred times. And right. so... It even actually says in the 9-11 Commission report, there's a disclaimer that says that these confessions or this information was like um, gained under um, harsh interrogations. But it doesn't say – I don't even think it says harsh interrogations. I think it just says like we can't – we don't know like the veracity of these claims because they were like relayed to us by interrogators because there's like no – they never saw recordings of them. They never even got like – raw transcripts of them they were just like reiterated to them by these interrogators right so that's i mean to me you know you don't have to be a truther you don't have to be a a conspiracy theorist to look at that and think it's extremely problematic that sort of the official record of 9-11 is heavily derived from torture like literally and um and yeah i mean regardless of if he's guilty of of you know, the murder of Daniel Pearl or or maybe he was involved in nine eleven in some way. It it's like at this point it's it's almost like it's meaningless because they already ruined um proving that he was guilty. I mean and no Well like, yeah, that's yeah, that's the point, is that he's saying that it's all ruined at this point and so that's why he's at least just trying to I guess they're trying to fight to just not get executed because they're saying you guys tortured all these people. Like bottom line they went through years of torture. So it's like, it's it's almost just like now, now what? Now you're going to execute them all? I mean, yeah, you're right. It's like, it's almost like it's just ruined the process. Yeah, even they should, if they by, were guilty. By default, at the very least, if they think that these people are the worst of the worst, um, they should, yeah, they should, I mean, give them a life sentence. You know, like if that's really what they think about him and they and they believe, truly believe that. But like execution based on, I mean, just at this point, it just seems completely inhumane 
you know, after putting someone through that much torture, it just doesn't make sense. It's it's so fucking wrong on so yeah, many Yeah, and you levels. want to hear something weird? I just remembered this. One of them isn't even in it for the 9-11 thing. He was apparently the mastermind in the 1998 coal bombing. 2000 coal bombing. Okay, and Al Nashiri. So he is lumped in with this trial too. Isn't that weird? That's, that is really weird. So, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's strange. I, I guess I heard a little bit about that there was like a USS coal bombing guy who yeah. was at Guantanamo or something. And, you know, Abel Danger, the Colonel Anthony Schaefer, like, mm-hmm. a pre, you know, like terrorism intelligence gathering thing. Well, this came out uh, last year that apparently he also tried to warn the the ship. The USS Cole was like p- going to a port in Yemen and uh, Abel Danger, like, were monitoring this guy's activities, possibly even the guy you're talking about who's in Gitmo. And the the nothing was done. Like the attacks actually eventually happened, um, but that was another thing that he claims that the U.S. government just ignored the warnings about that. So, wow. So it's interesting timing too. When the USS Cole happened, it was in October of 2000, which was like literally a month before the 2000 election. So it was like during this transitionary period where it would sort of. You know, prime people's mind, like psychologically, like this, you know, the American public was probably like just th- thrust into this weird new world where it's like a terrorist attack just happened. And then we had this new president coming in, you know, what's he going to do? And then, of course, he ignored terrorism for like almost a whole year. After it's just weird office. that he would like that's even crazier. It's like I could see the wire transfer thing being much more applicable than like someone who did a whole nother who was involved in like a whole nother bombing yeah to, that's, be, to be lumped into this trial yeah yeah that's that's weird so yeah i mean that's it in a nutshell it was just extremely sorry i feel stupid that i was like just like extremely emotional still i mean i it, it's very hard to process everything that happened and um some things that i can't even say on record that were like even more intense and um just leaving leaving the site and just thinking wow I'm going back you know just like the attorney said I'm like I'm going back to my house and my cats and I was like these dudes are just going back to a cell like it's just it was just so crazy to hear like this like the guy who I was talking about to the hunger the hunger strike thing and him just like act shocked like literally just act shocked why these people would be striking and it's like do you think these people fucking like want to be here dude like you, think, like just because you're giving them meals, I mean, I, it's like think about what you're saying. It just seems like it, yeah, it's either just extreme ignorance or they're just so brainwashed that they don't think of these people as like human beings. I mean, or or just like that they're all guilty. They have to be guilty of something, otherwise they wouldn't be here. Mm-hmm. I feel like that must be the mentality of most of the people working there that. They just have enough faith in the U.S. government to think that, well, of course, none of these people are even remotely innocent. You know, maybe some of them are worse than others, but they've all done something bad. So, you know, we don't we yeah, we mess up with the torture. But if at the very least, you know, they, they can't be let out because they're right. too dangerous. So like that's I mean, I'm sure that probably 99 percent of the people there believe that and like don't even question that logic. Oh, one one positive thing. 
um, to wrap up the broadcast is there was this big plane that was there on the tarmac and um, and I asked someone who, what it was for or whatever and they said that was Mujica's plane, President Mujica of Uruguay who had sent a plane over to grab six of the detainees that had already been cleared and he's just going to totally grant them freedom in Uruguay. Like I just love all these South and Latin American leaders who are like, fuck you. Like, like President Mujica is the most badass president in the world. Um, legalized marijuana. Oh, that's the same President Mujica. Yes. Oh my God. Oh, yeah. Okay. Legalized marijuana. Like gives all of his paycheck to like the poor. Like gave up his presidential palace to Syrian refugees. And then he was like, you know what? There's these 78 people who've been cleared for release that you are just too much of a weakling and that you're scared of the political repercussions of the Republicans and da 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 and Yemen relationship bullshit, right? He's like, fine, bring them to my country. So I'll start with six of them. Bring them on down. <laughs> and like there's this whole agreement that Obama had made with him where Obama's like, you need to keep them in the country for one year. And he was like, no, I'm not going to do anything. They're free to do whatever the hell they want. They get, they step foot in Uruguay and they can leave the minute they get here. <laughs> I don't care. <laughs> And so there's that plane there to take them. And I just thought it was so awesome. It was like such like a cool kind of one little sliver of hope, you know, like that one leader in the world is just stepping up, dude. He's just taking these guys over there and he'll probably take more. He probably could only negotiate six at one time. It's just so weird because it's like how if you can grab six people out of the prison who are cleared for release, how many are cleared for release? 78 right now. So what the fuck? Like why? And, and then because, and most of them are Yemeni. And the whole reason is that it's all political theater that Obama is saying we're at war with Yemen. So we can't trust to put these people back on the battlefield because they might return to the fight. And I asked him, I was like, well, what's the recidivism rate? What percentage of people that you have released have returned back to the fight? He wouldn't give me an answer. I know the answer. It's like 7%. So is 7% worth it? To, to keep innocent people in prison forever. Is that worth it? And, and again, that's only just throwing them back into Yemen or whatever. And then you have these five dudes, the, the Bo Bergdahl thing back in Qatar. It's like, dude, just give them back to Uruguay. Like, let these people just have a life. 90% of them have, like, they just want to be free. They're not thinking of committing terrorism. Please. It's incredible. It's incredible because, I mean, it's already been almost 14 years since they've been there, and we're just, we're just I mean, waiting, how, much, how much longer? Obama just wants to pass it on. Obama just wants to pass it on to the next president, you know? I mean, He doesn't want to deal with it. And and what do we think, that the next president, I mean, is going to be any <laughs> better? I, I just, it's just so weird to me that he kept promising to close it so many times and even brought it up in his last State of the Union address. And then here we are just pretty much, you know, we're getting really close to the 2016 elections and he's just, there just seems to be zero movement whatsoever. Yeah. And, and I asked the guy that too. I said, do you think it sends the world a mixed message when, you know, Obama signs this national security or I'm sorry, executive order to close Gitmo when he first gets in office? And I was like, but then codifies indefinite detention with the 2012 National Defense Authorization Act. I was like... So where would the facilitation be? 
if this is just legal now. You know yeah. what I mean? Well, that I mean, in, in what you just described, I didn't even really think about it before, but that could set him up with just the framework to like keep the people indefinitely detained exactly. and just move them somewhere else. Oh, oh, yeah, that's another thing. Oh, my God, a hugely important point. The people who have been... so Okay, so not only are these five people on the doing the commissions, you know, for this trial. Yeah. There's something called the Joint Tribunal... Some other... Fuck, what is it called? It's like, it's the other tribunal system that is hearing these cases... <clears throat> The people who are the other people. So like the other 140 people go through this other procedure to find out if they can be cleared for release too. It was supposed to go much faster. It's going at a, a snail's pace. They're hearing like one case every two years <clears throat> or like every year, which is outrageous. Shouldn't take that long to figure out that these people are innocent. So it's all of this, all of these layers, when you peel them back, you realize what a facade and a charade the entire processes, all the terms, all the notions, the preconceived notions that you have, strip it all away. And essentially, the same amount of people are being held either in or outside Guantanamo. Nothing makes sense. No, there's no logic to be had. It's just an absurd display of injustice perpetuated costing american taxpayers eight hundred thousand dollars per year per detainee it's hard to believe but <laughs> i mean it's 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 real and yeah obama could sign a national security waiver today to, to actually just facilitate every case of the of everyone and just release them i mean but he the, won't this is the crazy thing it's like we we look back at the japanese internment camps as being so inhumane so wrong just so unethical on so many levels and 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 hor horrible that we did that to the Japanese um, American citizens who were Japanese in this country, but we actually we know for a fact because our our grandpa actually did this job there where he was a court reporter for trials that were held for um, these Japanese, um, and, or sorry, they interned Japanese where they would basically be able to prove their innocence to a court and they would be released one by one, you know, if they were able to do that. Um, because most of them, I mean, probably none of them were Japanese spies really anyways. So, but in Guantanamo that there's no process like that. Like these inmates aren't like getting, you know, um, shuffled one by one into a courtroom to like to like argue for why they're innocent or anything like that. They're just in complete legal limbo, which is in some ways it's actually worse than the Japanese internment camps. And the Japanese internment camps are only open for four years too. So, yeah. I mean, this is, yeah. And like I said on your show that one time, it's like when something goes on for this long, it's... It's like there's no historical precedent for something this egregious and quasi-legal going on for this long. And when that happens, it becomes normal. It's, exactly. It's just, it, just gets, it just gets accepted. This is the way things are. There is no imminent like, reason to close Guantanamo Bay. Nobody is talking about these people besides a handful of people, these reporters that you met down there and, and you know, these military um, defense attorneys are, are care about the, their clients and stuff. But beyond that, 
I mean, it's kind of like a media blackout pretty much about it. You don't want to hear something else really sad. Yeah. Like, and I don't want to say, I'm not trying to like sound sympathetic to people like Clay Jake Muhammad. Like I don't, I'm sympathetic. Look, I, even the worst criminals on earth, I don't believe in the death penalty for anyone. Of course. So it's, I'm not like, I don't believe in like the eye for the eye shit. And plus we know that there's a lot of other shit that we, we will never know. So I'm not trying to sound like apologetic or sympathetic. I just want to put that out there, but I, I did just read from Carol Rosenberg's Twitter right now that on the last day of court that I missed, um, that they all wore Gaza colors, the five dudes. Oh. Like to stand in solidarity with Palestine. Oh. To court. I don't know how they coordinated that. I mean, the problem is it's like, yeah, Khalid Sheikh Muhammad, it's like there's so much bad shit out there that you can read about him. But the bottom line is that if he's really guilty of all the, these crimes, then show it to us in a public trial. Let the press in, you know, conduct it in the light of day. Instead, they're doing these fucking bullshit military commissions where they're trying multiple people at once. It's just like right. until they do that, I'm not going to like automatically say anything like oh yeah he should be you know thrown in the electric chair or or i mean i first of all i don't believe in the death penalty but like even the idea of like throwing him like you know life in prison without any contact with the outside world i think that that's i don't i i just think that they everybody deserves an equal footing in the legal justice system and that's the very least we can do of course to the after after what these people have endured yeah, and the idea, and, and it's also kind of bullshit, too, to think, well, we can't try them fairly now because of how much they've been tortured. Well, what was the evidence that they had in the first place to bring him in there? I mean, if they had, like, evidence to prove that he was behind all these things and just try him on those and omit the things that they, you know, they interrogated him over. But it, but it's still, at the same time, he is probably, like, mentally unfit at this point to, like, you know... I don't know. I mean, if, if if you've been waterboarded that many times, who the fuck knows what happens to your mind? Yeah, I mean, apparently before, and once again, this could be just some lunatic with delusions of grandeur, but apparently before he was waterboarded at all, he was on TV saying that he ran the September 11 attacks from A to Z. <laughs> Where, which, do you know which TV station that I was on? I don't. Interesting. But we can find out. I bet, you know, History Commons, I'm sure, has Yeah. That. There's a lot of weird stuff that the military will refer to like that. Like here's another example of that is they'll, they'll refer to the martyrdom videos that the hijackers made. Um, and there are martyrdom videos like the, the hijackers are actually Mm -hmm. like, um, doing these like pledges to like jihad and stuff. But a lot of the stuff in the video is not specifically talking about nine 11 and they will have, and they'll, then this is, this is what you'll see in the press. Like if you look back and see their martyrdom videos, it's like videos of them, like superimposed over pictures of the world trade center on fire and stuff, Whoa. which, which could only mean one thing is that someone, some Arab, you know, media network or like network that worked with terrorist groups or whatever, put these together after the attacks because they're, that footage wouldn't have existed. Do you see what I'm saying? Right, right, That right. they superimposed. So, like, that's the only footage we have of that kind of stuff. And so I'd like to actually see the footage of him saying he yeah, did the attacks no, from ADZ to, to, to see actually it. what the fuck, you know. Right, try to find it. But I've, I just wanted to wrap this up by saying this is hilarious. Um, the last day, so yesterday, 
or no Friday, sorry. Last day in court this week, Khalid Sheikh Muhammad's attorney, which is David Nevin, um, and there's a, some other guy too, who actually had to give up his entire military career as well to represent Khalid Sheikh Muhammad, which would be really hard. Um, if you like, that would be hard. I think that would be probably the hardest job. But apparently, Khalid Sheikh Muhammad wrote Obama a letter. <laughs> Um, about his views on Gaza and other current events. It says, um, in, in the letter, Muhammad complains about Muslim oppression at the hands of the West in general. The U.S. in particular topics include what happened in Iraq during the period of U.S. sanctions, events in Palestine and Gaza over the decades, and especially the recent events. And it said, Nevin said that he doubts the letter contains classified information, although he noted that Obama has the sweeping power to declassify it. And then it says that... Um, it also quotes Quran, talks about Richard Nixon, offers a range of opinions on current events <laughs> to the U.S. military suicide rate, which he blames on conspicuous U.S. consumption in impoverished Afghanistan. <laughs> like, it's just super interesting. I wonder what the letter says. But, I mean, it all depends. They're never going to release it, obviously, because it would be like giving fodder, you know, like giving a platform to whatever. But yeah. it's just super interesting to know that he wrote that and that they're able to like talk about kind of elements in it. Yeah. And I mean, and when it, when, and it really comes down to it, it's like even if all these people are 100% guilty, exactly what the military said they were, even if that's true, which I don't really necessarily believe that it is. I mean, obviously there's a lot of like, you know, weirdness and and like vagueness with with the, what kind of information they choose to leak and stuff but like even if all that's true nobody in the US government was ever held accountable for 9/11 and there were so many opportunities for them to do something to stop it so it's like even even you know not even going into the conspiracy territory it's just it's just remarkable how no one was even ever fired Really, right? At all no, yeah. Without talking about conspiracies at all, no one was demoted or fired for fucking up. Yeah, because we know how much intelligence was given. So if you're telling me that they were all the wires were crossed and all these people didn't get their facts straight, fire people at the top because that's some incompetent shit that can't just go swept under the rug. In my opinion, no, clean absolutely out not. the deck. No, and and it's and it is absolutely absurd. I mean. On a couple episodes of Media Roots before this one that we're going to put out, they, I mean, we I, we, we talked about the Bojinka plot, um, which was what Khalid Sheikh Muhammad was most famous for before 9-11, which was essentially like the 9-11 plot that was supposed to be hatched or that was supposed to be executed three years before 9-11, where they were going to hijack all these planes simultaneously, fly one of them into the CIA headquarters in Langley, Virginia, and we foiled this plot. Um, and I think Spanish uh, Spanish government intelligence foiled part of it too over there. So it's just it's just completely unbelievable um, that the U.S. government was so taken by surprise by just the the mere concept of this the, the of what happened on 9/11. I mean, and this is the guy they're blaming for being the mastermind of 9/11. But three years earlier, he gave he like. All of his cards were on the table and you knew exactly what he was planning and like still somehow three years later, like this wasn't able to be prevented. So it's just it's just really fascinating when you go back and Yeah, all these people are promoted. Yeah. And then and and after this episode I'm probably gonna put out this this um 
this thing I did where I locked myself in my room for like a few days straight and just went over the whole Clinton administration's uh, um, war on terror and like exactly what they knew and what they did and all this stuff. And it's just like the when you go back to the Clinton administration, you just really see how how much bullshit was spewed by the Bush administration right. about what they knew about terrorism, what their focus was on it. Right. It's re- really fascinating to just know, understand the context of like, you know, what the, all these Al-Qaeda people were doing throughout the 90s and how they were able to operate unimpeded for so long, even when we were like wiretapping bin Laden's cell phone and shit, like all throughout the 90s. It's just like, it makes you wonder like, how, how didn't they get, you know, bombed or drone attacked or like renditioned or arrested before 9-11? Yeah, remember we keep hearing that ad nauseum, like Clinton let bin Laden go in the mountains of Tora Bora, like, I mean, it would be interesting to just kind of trace it back from the Soviet takeover of Afghanistan where we're fighting the Soviet, and then like up until through the Clinton administration, because all we hear really about is the 80s and then the 2000s. Oh, yeah. And that and I think that's on purpose because I just wanted to I know you have to go, but I wanted to tell you one one interesting fact that really parallels with what's happening right now is one of the last things I recorded. So I started I did this whole Clinton episode and I went through like all of the. You know, pretty much like anything that mimicked sort of the war on terror under Bush, like any new legislation that had to do with terrorism, found all that stuff. And then I realized they completely omitted anything about the Taliban. And I was like, you know, that's I'm really interested in how the Taliban formed over the 90s, because that's something we don't really hear about very much. Like, how did it go from Mujahideen fighting the Soviets to the Taliban and then then to 9-11? So it turns out that the Taliban was actually an organic happening. It was like, you know, Mujahideen fighters, um, more fundamentalist ones, um, performed, you know, they, they essentially took over Kandahar, which was, I guess, at the time, like, you know, a, a pretty, like, strategically important area of Afghanistan. And this was, like, in 92 or 93. And then immediately what happened was the Pakistani ISI did a similar thing to what the CIA does in other countries when there's like a coup or an uprising. They started to fund it, and they essentially co-opted it and took it over. So pretty much throughout the whole 90s, the Pakistani ISI was funding and supporting the Taliban. I mean, it was essentially their creation. They wouldn't have gotten in control of the government had it not been for their money. And then this is the weirdest part. This this exactly reminds me of what's happening with ISIS right now. So you know how, like, after we left Iraq, apparently ISIS came over from Syria and then, like, seized all this military equipment that we left over there for the Iraqi government? Well, when the Soviets left Afghanistan, apparently we left a bunch of our military equipment that we gave to the Mujahideen in these secret um, caves and tunnels in Afghanistan that somehow remained secret for, like, many, many years after the Soviets left. And this is the part that doesn't make any sense to me, is we told Pakistani ISI where these tunnels were so that they could get the weapons out for us. But instead of them getting the weapons out for us, they let the Taliban get all the weapons and tanks. (laughs) So that's pretty much, that was like the formation of the Taliban army and stuff, was they actually are using all of our equipment, literally. Just like ISIS. I mean, it's just like the same shit repeating over again. Like, how did how does the U.S. government let these things keep happening? <laughs> you know, it's just wow. it's really it just makes you wonder, like, did we want that to happen? Like, do we want ISIS to take over Iraq again? I mean, it's just 
it's it's no, really no, I no. That's the thing is, I I think that there's knowing how dumb and compartmentalized everything is. I really don't think. I don't think they planned for ISIS, but I think that their stupidity and incompetence of like not funding or training the Iraqi military and just kind of like leaving it all haphazard and just being like, well, mission's over. And it's like, it just leaves all these voids where the Iraqi army is like, clearly a, they don't give a fuck enough about Maliki to stay and fight, to die for the government. Yeah. They just fucking fled, you know? So it's like, it is, it, it can all be traced back to the U S but I just, I don't know. I'm hesitant to say all of this is like a plan because oh, yeah. I really no, don't get, think it is. That's, that's my tendency to I'm giving like the neo, the original neocons who came up with a lot of no. the stuff too yeah. much credit where it's like, you're giving them way too much credit, <laughs> but I mean, it really does benefit their sort of ideology in the long term to have like well, it's so stupid. You almost are like, how could they be this stupid? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's like either they're incredibly stupid or they're incredibly smart and like and like um, Machiavellian, or it's more likely it's somewhere in between. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think. I mean, yeah, it's just like the opium. It's like, are they that stupid to just let you know let the opium like be proliferated from Afghanistan when they're like surveilling everything? I mean, who knows? Or are they overseeing shit? We don't know. I mean. Yeah. All we can point to is the dots that connect and what we can show and how ridiculous and how this always backfires every single time. But I do need to go. But to wrap it up very quickly, um, very surreal. But the night that I got back, which was Friday, Zero Dark Thirty was on and I had I didn't want to watch it and I had been protesting watching it. But for some reason, I couldn't get on demand on my TV and I was just like, fuck, I'll just watch it. And it was just so weird. Like, it was just weird that I, that it was just on right when I got back and I just watched this movie and it was just, it was just so dumb, you know? I mean, was it, uh, (laughs) if you didn't know anything about it beforehand, would you, after watching it, would you say that it was like obvious propaganda or was it like nuanced and clever enough? Oh God. Oh no, 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 no. It was totally obvious propaganda. It was not I missed actually the torture part thank god because I don't think I would have been able to handle that especially after like having communications with this lawyer and stuff but I started watching right after like that that part of it the the part that was just so offensive to me is that how much the government acted like they cared about not just drone bombing this house like how the woman was like oh you know they found this really top level compound in Pakistan and how it took her like a year to get anyone to want to do anything about it. And like all of Obama's officials were like, we don't just kill people. We need evidence. Like, how do you know this has been lauded in here? And it's like, fuck you guys. You guys would have drawn the shit out of that. Like, it's just, it was just like so ridiculous. It's like, don't front. Don't front like you're trying to find out hard evidence to get the people bef- before you kill them to know that yeah, these people hilarious. are really guilty. It was like, that was the funniest part because it was like literally half the movie of her trying to convince people to act. Oh my god! On this compound. <laughs> wow. Oh man. Well, thank you for for listening to our um, all the Guantanamo story. My footage will be coming out. I think the first week of September will come out with at least two full shows, um, trying to tell kind of the history of of the Cuba, the occupation of Cuba, and the torture, and then um, you know the the tribunals, and then also the the commissions that are happening right now. So we'll just try to give a giant overview and. And then, Robbie, you can come on and talk about all the Clinton stuff once you put stuff together about that. So 
Thank you so much for listening, everyone. Everyone, donate to MediaRoots.org. Please uh, sign up for our newsletter on MediaRoots.org. Send an email to info at MediaRoots.org so the person managing that email account can see um, if you have any submissions that you want. If you're a journalist, we're definitely hiring. Um, So just let us know. We're always uh, open. It's a growing forum, and we really appreciate your support. Thanks for listening, everybody. Peace out.